Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Well, good evening. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 2? And I'm going to ask that we rise for the reading of God's word. And I am going to read Psalm 1 and 2 for context tonight. So please follow along with me. Psalm number 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage in the people's plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you in weakness. The reality is, God, we don't know how weak we are, but we come clinging to your grace, coming before your throne now, coming before your word, only because of the work and the finished work of your Son. We pray tonight that your Spirit would bring your word, your eternal word, your powerful word, your sanctifying word, sharp as a two-edged sword, that it would pierce, that it would... uh, 
wound, that it would mend, that it would heal, all to the glory of your name. Help us, God, to understand, to grasp, and to treasure your word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the late Billy Graham once famously said something that I thought is very fitting. If God does not soon judge America, he will have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He had a point. His point's clear, right? Despite its biblical roots, uh, America is a godless nation in a godless world. But the reality is, God isn't going to soon judge America. God is judging America. God is judging America by letting us indulge in letting America indulge in all its deplorable sins. John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur says this, God will abandon sinners to their own choices and the consequences of those choices. And just what is this abandoning act on God's part? It's the removal of restraining grace. It's when God lets go and turns a society over to its own sinful freedoms and the result of those freedoms. That's God's judgment on America. And certainly we're witnessing this today, right? I mean, we are in the month of pride, you guys. I mean, I can't go like one hour without getting an update on my phone inviting me to celebrate pride with them, right? What a fitting term, because last time I checked, God said he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and that pride comes before the fall. So I always found it interesting why June is Pride Month. It's like, well, yeah, that's exactly what scripture teaches. The proud comes, pride comes before the fall. But that's not it, right? I mean, we we have uh, a nation that is obsessed with killing children in the womb. We have movies and media that pump out filth that make us blush at even the thought, even the mention of the things that are done in them, right? We have professors in colleges that are mocking the very idea of God. And the list can go on and on. And my point in saying all that tonight is not to drag us to despair because you're like, well, that's a way to open a message. But no, it's not. It's not my point tonight. My point is to show us that, that the reality, it's to point us to the reality that this is what it looks like when people abandon God and abandon his word. And it's what it looks like, like in Judges, when everybody is doing right in their own eyes. And yet, our God is sovereign, and he is on his throne, and he is a righteous judge. Amen. So what are we to do? We take refuge in the king. And we tell everybody we can to do the very same thing. The two Psalms we just read are said to really summarize the entire Psalter, the entire book of Psalms. All the 148 Psalms that come after are really just streams flowing from this one main fountainhead. And these two Psalms really communicate this this one overarching truth that reverberates throughout all of God's word. And it's this, that in God's economy, there are only two ways, not three. Two paths, not three. 
Joshua, when he is giving his closing remarks to the people of Israel, he says, you're either going to serve God faithfully or you're not going to serve him at all. Jesus says you're either on the broad path, which leads us to destruction, or the narrow path, which leads to life. Revelation 3.15 says that you're either hot or you are cold, but you can't be lukewarm. There's only two paths. Psalm 1 unpacks that you're either walking righteously or you're walking unrighteously. Right? You're either a tree planted by the streams of water or you are the chaff, the, the waste that is blown away. You're either delighting yourself in the counsel of God's word or you're sitting with the counsel of the wicked. Similarly, Psalm 2. And we're going to see this tonight. Psalm 2 unpacks that you're either vainly, you're either vainly attempting to usurp the king and his good and perfect rule or you submit to him like a wise man. And rest in him, trusting in him. Psalm 1, it unpacks that the wicked, excuse me, Psalm 1, it unpacks that the wicked are, the righteous meditate on God's law where the wicked are trying to cast it off. Psalm 1, it shows that, that the wicked are scoffing at God. Psalm 2, God is laughing at them. You see how these psalms are kind of coupled together. Psalm 1, the righteous are like, plant, are, are like firmly planted streams by streams of living water. But Psalm 2, we see that the righteous one is established forever. So, tonight, we're going to see in Psalm 2, these four stanzas all having to do with Yahweh and his good and eternal king. One, the rebels against the king. Two, the response of the king. Three, the reign of the king. And lastly, four, like our title, the refuge of the king. So look at verses one to three again. There are always going to be those who rebel against the king. Those who rage and plot against them. And his rule. In fact, in light of Genesis chapter 3, we all know this. We are all natural born rebels against the king. We're born at odds with God. We're we're at opposition with him. Not only that, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 that he goes so far as to say we are in league with Satan in our natural selves. So before we look at 1 to 3 and say, wow, look at these rulers of the earth scoffing against, uh, raging against God. Let us not scoff at them because everybody in this room tonight was in that place one point in time. Some of you may still be. And it is only because of the sovereign grace of Christ and, 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 and that we have peace with him. And it is that very same grace that can reconcile these rebels. So verse 1, David opens here with a rhetorical question. He's questioning the audacity of sinners who pit themselves against Yahweh, their creator. It's as if he's saying, who do you think you are? 
That's what he's saying. It's a rhetorical question. There's no answer. Who are these sinners, these created beings, who spitting in the face of their creator against the Lord and his anointed, literally translated against his Messiah. Yes, this psalm was written by David, but it points us to the Messiah. It points us to Christ. And every type of person is involved here. Nations, peoples, kings, rulers. Both rulers and peasants alike set themselves against God. And that's true of our day. Sin sin shows no partiality. It never has. It never will. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter who you are. All are born in sin. But we look at these terms here. And I know I'm I'm reading out the ESV, but, but mine says rage and plot. Look at these terms. Rage. What does it mean? It it refers to a white hot indignation. It's a a grinding of teeth. The Webster's Dictionary defines it as, as a fuming and uncontrollable anger. See, these rebels are not just passively living out their days in opposition to the king. They're actively seeking to dethrone him. And that's exactly what verse 2 tells us. They want nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with God. They can't stand God. All they want to do is to run in their freedoms without restraint. They, they are banding, banding together to go against the Lord. This is not passive. Guys, listen. This is not passive, haphazard, like, oh, we're, we're against God. No, no, it is deliberate devised scheming to try and dethrone the Lord. That is what the wicked are doing. That is how they want to spend their every breath trying to rage against God. I love Charles Spurgeon, what he says here. He says, Oh, that man were half as careful in God's service to serve him wisely as his enemies are to attack his kingdom craftily. Ouch. That's the natural state of every person. Some time ago for one of my seminary classes, I was reading in Time Magazine an article. And it was titled, Six Myths About Abortion. Now you could imagine it was a very liberal article, and I was reading it just to reference it for this paper I was writing. But I kid you not, the ve- this just gives you an idea, guys, of what our culture is pumping out, right? The very first sentence of the article, very first sentence of the article, quote, it should not matter what the Bible says about abortion, end quote. The Time magazine is read by a lot of people. That just goes to show you our culture isn't just against God. They just don't want him. They don't want him in anything. They can't stand the fact that he is there. And now you're thinking, okay, Chad, we get it. Culture messed up. Stop beating the dead horse. I will, but I need to get this point across because it's so important before we move to our next point. Because the reality is the sinner, the rebel against God, the natural man hates God. At one point in time, I hated God. At one point in time, you hated God. I love how Trinity Church has so much influence in the culture. 
in the Fresno and Clovis area. I love, the, the, I love how we have so much influence in the, the pregnancy center. Mothers and fathers coming in there, not just saving the physical life of their child, but they themselves hearing of the spiritual life they can have in Christ. I love it. I was just in the NICU, guys, for 32 days with my, two, um, with my twins. And when I was there, I think it was three or four nurses that worked in the NICU were from Trinity Church. Guys, that is so awesome. That's the influence that, that Trinity is putting out into the culture. So this dark culture, we have like the light of Christ is going forth. It's so awesome to hear in the hospital, like we're sitting there, my wife and I, Rebecca and I, are sitting there holding our, our kids and like they're praying for us. That, that's such a neat thing. Look, all the striving against God that the wicked pump out, we are told it's all in vain. It's all in vain. Literally, it's emptiness. They can rage, scheme, and plot all the live long day. But guys, at the end of the day, verse 6 tells us everything we need to know. As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. Steal a quote from Vody Bauckham. He says, son, your arms are simply too short to box with God, so just stay down. <laughs> I love that. Verse 3. All the raging, all the plotting, all the scheming, all the striving, the sin against the king ultimately comes from a rejection of God's word. Because all sin is ultimately a rejection of God's word, right? I mean, we look back at Genesis chapter 3. What happens? Adam and Eve, they're told what? Not to eat the fruit of the tree. And what do they do? They're like, nah, we want the fruit of the tree. We know what God says, but we want it anyway. So that's what sin is. It's rejecting what God has said. In the same way, these rebels, verse 3, it says this. This is what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart <clears throat> and cast away their cords from us. That's what, the, that's what the rebel sees God's word as. All he sees God's word as is cords, as shackles, as handcuffs. All they see is God's word is there holding them back from doing what they really want to do, and that is to live freely in their sin. Ah, but the Christian, they don't see God's word as shackles, right? With the redeeming grace of Christ, they see God's word as freeing. They love God's word. Psalm 1, they delight in the law of God day and night. They see God's word not as something that holds them back, but as something that gives them great hope. And I'm sure many of us can testify to this. James 1.25 refers to the word of God as the law of liberty. Not binding, the law of liberty. Psalm 19 talks about the law of God and it's perfect, it's sure, it's righteous, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. Jesus says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, contrary to what the sinner thinks, our Lord Jesus tells us to come to him and find rest. Why? Because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. take one more quote from Spurgeon because I just couldn't pass it up. He says, to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? 
So let me ask you guys today. Do you love that yoke? Yes, you. Christian, saved by the grace of God. Do you love that yoke? Do you delight in God's word? Is it where you find joy or do you find yourself simply raging against him, wanting to do what you want to do whenever you'd want to do it? Moving to our next stanza. Psalm, uh, verse four to six, response of the king. So we, we just saw that there's always rebels against the king, but now we're going to look at the response, what he says in response to them. In the first stanza, we're, we're bystanders, if you will, in the wicked council chamber. But now in this second stanza, we get an immense privilege of coming into the throne room of God and seeing what he has to say in response to them. Those who would reject Yahweh and his king, they really want to be their own king. They want to become their God in their own eyes. They want to establish their own law with one overarching rule, right? They do whatever they want in their heart. Whatever their heart desires, that's what they do. It's like, let me paint this picture. It's as if this man, bear with me, somehow finds his way into heaven. And as he enters heaven... He finds his way not only into the heaven, but the, the highest of heaven, the grand throne room where God is seated. And he walks into the throne, presumptuous throne room, presumptu- presumptuously, can't speak, arrogantly, pridefully, looks at the king, walks over to the king, grabs hold of him, throws him off the throne, and plops his rear right down on the throne. That is what the wicked are trying to do to God. It's so outrageous that it's almost laughable. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. It's so ridiculous. This is the infinite, the omnipotent, the omniscient, omnipresent creator God who is sovereign over the entire universe from the farthest star. I mean, not one leaf falls, you guys, without God saying fall. Not one sand speck moves without God saying move. This is the sovereign God we're talking about. I mean, Psalm 115.3 says this, but our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42.2, Job says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 113.4, the Lord Yahweh is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens, who is like Yahweh our God, the one enthroned on high. The wicked plot against God, they mock God with all these evil and sinful faults policies but while the wicked use all their strength all their wicked all their strength all their vigor to stand against god it is all in vain the foolish and sinful striving of god's enemies are no threat to god at all they really aren't now they it grieves god right we know that our sin grieves god but it's no threat to him god is not at war with the nations as if they stand a chance no they are at war with him and he laughs at their coming calamity that's what this psalm is painting for us. And why the laughter? Look at verse 6. God has already done what the, what the wicked are seeking to prevent. 
I mean, verse 6 is like the centerpiece of this psalm, you guys. Look at In all the scheming faces of the enemy, God responds with his eternal decree. My king has already been established, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. All the striving to be rid of God's rule is in vain because the Lord Jesus Christ is king forever. Throughout all of history, despite the evilness done against the church, against God, all of that. You, despite all of that, God has rehearsed this truth. My king is in Zion. Righteousness will prevail. Righteousness will prevail. Mark that, you guys. Righteousness will prevail in the end. It always, we we just know, promised in his word, it will prevail. Jesus Christ reigns whether the peoples of the earth choose to recognize him or not. Philippians 2 tells us something very important, you guys, that there will be a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So take heart. We live in a dark world. Trials will come. Persecution will come. It's guaranteed by our Lord. Don't think we can escape it. The kingdom of darkness is going to do its very best to destroy the church. In fact, when they inevitably fail to cast off God, because you cannot really cast off God, they're going to go to the next best thing. They're going to go to God's people. But listen, our king is on his throne. And even though they will try, not even the gates of hell will prevail. Right, we're told, not even against the hell, hell will prevail against the church. So we consider the sovereign rule of our king and we are encouraged. Third point. The reign of the king. Verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We know that he does reign. But what does his reign look like? What can we expect Well, again, this psalm was written by David, King David. And David, as we know, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can read it later, is promised a descendant who will reign forever. We know that descendant to be none other but Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7, 14, quote, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So you see, David, who wrote this psalm, whose promised descendant, who was promised a descendant whose throne would never end, is rehearsing that same truth. David, now rehearsing these truths in a poetic fashion, is speaking of that very descendant in the first person. He's not referring to himself. He refers to the anointed king who would come from his line, the one who Yahweh swore he would establish forever. It's as if, guys, listen, Christ is speaking directly. And indeed, he is through his servant, David. One thing we can expect from the reign of this king is that it is an eternal reign. It will have no end. Rulers on this earth come and go, but the king of heaven is from everlasting to everlasting. An exact look at what is it said here. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
This is a direct admission, you guys, of Christ's deity. People's like, oh, was, 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 you know, prove to me that Christ was God. You know, prove, you hear that all the time. At least I do. And it's, it's a silly argument. Look at, you are my son, the day I begotten you. This is a direct admission of Christ's deity. Jesus Christ is not only God's son by mere adoption. He's God's very own son. Born of the Father. No other being in all of history has ever received that kind of title or will ever receive that kind of title. There is no one like this king. All the rulers may band together. They may plot and scheme, but David's point is clear. This king who is established is is the incomparable eternal son of God who has always existed and who will always exist. Real quick, just look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, referring to Christ, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It keeps going, but I'm going to stop. This is the one that the nations are against. This is the one who sits on the throne. Their very existence, you guys, is due to him. So really, yes, all their striving is in vain. They're just striving against their creator. The next verse informs us now that the very nations that have set themselves against the king are the very nations that he receives his inheritance. Fancy that. In other words, despite their opposition to them, both then and now, it's always been his. It's always been his. He was decreed in eternity past. Whether or not they recognize it, Christ rules over them. He rules over the entire earth, over the entire universe. And it's important we understand that, you guys. Because listen, Adam failed in this regard. The first Adam. Adam was to expand the borders of the garden, but what does he do? Him and Eve, they decide to eat of the fruit and they're banished from the garden. They were, exp- they were told to, be- to expand the borders of the garden to expand the glory of the Lord over the earth and they failed in that. Israel was to expand the, the borders of the promised land. Why? So that the glory of the Lord might be made known. That's the whole point of the Abrahamic covenant. Read Genesis chapter 12 when you get a chance. Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing to the nations. And ultimately we know that to be true through Christ, but Israel still failed in that regard. They failed. But you know who doesn't fail? You know. This king. This king, the one that Yahweh promises, will not fail. He will possess the ends of the earth, establishing God's glory over it. Guys, this is the future we get to look forward to. Establishing God's glory over it. A day is coming in which all creation will worship the king. And whoever, whoever does not stand or whoever does not will have as much chance before him on that day as a clay pot does before an iron rod. I think we can imagine what would happen if you took an iron rod and swung it at a clay pot. Shattered. Revelation 19 says, From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They can either bend before him or he'll break them and then they'll bend. But this psalm can seem cruel, but it is not. In fact, I think it is one of the most gracious psalms, one of the most gracious portions of scripture we have. Because God is not cruel. He does not destroy without first offering his hand of mercy. There can be hope for even the worst of God's enemies. Guys, look at those who know Christ have the joy and the privilege of expanding God's glory over the face of the earth by advancing the gospel of the kingdom. And so I urge you, do not resist this king's reign, but advance his kingdom in proclaiming the good news of the gospel, as Mark 16, 15 puts it, to all creation. And finally, the refuge of the king. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You guys, warnings are always a gracious thing. It's like when your parents warn you not to put a tweezers in the outlet, right? It's a good thing they're telling you that. If you're like me, you not only do that, but you stick a fork in the toaster. I turn off the power in our house and the whole house was smoking. My dad laughed at me. He actually put on the toaster, because the one side of the toaster was kaput. He put toasting side and then suicide on that other side. I was like, thanks, dad. Warnings are a good thing. They are. They're just gracious. And I'm so glad God's word gives us warnings. Warning us of the wrath of God to come. Look, we've seen the rebels against the king. We've heard the response of the king. We've seen the sure and coming reign of the king. And now we are told this. We're given an application. We're given a command, actually. This is the first command of the psalm. Be warned. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Kiss the Son. See, despite all the evil done against the king, God says you don't have to live as enemies any longer. You don't. There can be a ceasefire. There can be peace. Even though sinners deserve his wrath and judgment, he offers another way, a way in which he does not have to treat us as our sins deserve to be treated. He offers an outstretched hand of mercy. But listen, you guys, only the wise take hold of it. 
Only the wise take hold of the hand. The wisest people that ever lived, you know, we know they're not our typical hotshots, right? We know that guys like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, they're smart, but they're not, they're not wise. The wisest people that ever lived are those who fear the Lord. Proverbs is clear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is found ultimately in submitting to and serving the Lord, not striving against him. It's found in delighting in the counsel of his word instead of rejecting it with the counsel of the wicked. Or even more plain, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. True wisdom is found in submitting to the king and living in accordance with his word and his kingdom and not seeking to cast it off. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, and we're coming to a close here, and I think many of us can agree, it's, it's the thief on the cross next to Jesus. It's actually been said that he like, serves as an example of so many theological points in the Bible, but it's, we won't get into that tonight. But he gives us an example here I think is just so, so fitting. Here you have a man that lived a life of raging against God, right? You don't get to a Roman cross for jaywalking. You get to a Roman cross for a life of murder, a life of thievery, a life of, you can imagine other things. Like, you're there because you've done some pretty wicked things. And after all those years of sin, he has a now a front row seat to the king of the universe dying on a cross. recognizing that he is there justly and Jesus is not there justly. He rebukes the other criminal and then he does probably the wisest thing. No, I know he does the wisest thing that he could have ever done. Jesus, probably with very little breath left, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What happens? Jesus looks at him and says, Nope, I'm sovereign Lord and I'm going to dash you to pieces like a clay pot because that's what you deserve. Today, not tomorrow, today, very in a few minutes, you will be with me in paradise. Here he was, bending his knee, though on a cross, before the king, submitting to him, fearing him, seeking refuge in him. Guys, God, just like that, God's hand of mercy is outstretched, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. As the prodigal son's father rejoiced at his son's return, so God rejoices at ours. He loves to save sinners. It brings him some supreme joy. I love it whenever Sam preaches. It never fails that I never walk away discouraged or in despair. 
I walk away broken for sin, yes, but I never walk away in despair because Sam always paints a beautiful picture of the love and the grace of Christ to save sinners. And it thrills my heart. So, the story of Jesus and Simon the Pharisee's home. I want to end with that. If you remember, the, the, it says that Jesus is in the Pharisee's house and there's a, a woman of the city there, a prostitute. But she comes in while, the, while Simon the Pharisee's there, kind of smugly, arrogantly, sitting there with Jesus. She comes in with reckless abandon, with no care of what people think of her, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, weeping uncontrollably, uncontrollably and wiping his feet with her hair. The text says that she kissed him over and over, anointing his feet with ointment. Why? Because she was a sinner in the presence of her king. That's what it means to kiss the son. Broken before him, seeking refuge in him, realizing there's no other option here. I need to go to him. That's what it means to kiss the son. In brokenness, we come to him, submitting ourselves to before him, embracing him as our only hope of salvation. It means that even when, listen, even when we are saved, we return to him again and again and again and again because we are still in these bodies of flesh. We don't return to him for salvation. We return to him for grace, for sanctifying grace, to put to death sin, to treasure Christ, to love his word, to pray more, to advance the gospel. We go to him more and more and seek refuge more and more in him. See, the same king whose wrath is easily kindled is the same one who bore the wrath for you at Calvary. Jesus takes our sin. He receives God's wrath in full in our stead, forgiving us of our sins, lavishing on us his perfect life of righteousness lovingly so that we might be justified, declared right before him. So, Take refuge in the king. Flee the wrath of God. For indeed his iron rod will strike, but you need not take the blow because the king has taken it for you. We really can say as this psalm closes, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Tonight, as you go to your small groups, I have one question and I hope we can get to it in your small groups. It's read Ephesians chapter 1. And see the blessedness that we have in Christ. It is incomparable. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.